Good evening and welcome back to our next installment of Bring Out the Best in Your Spouse, Your Children, and Yourself. With me, your host, Rabbi Yisrael Roll. This evening, our special guest is going to be from Manchester, England, Rabbi Yehuda Yona Rubenstein, also known as YY Rubenstein, a very famous, well-known speaker around the world, lecturer, and a student chaplain in University of Manchester and Leeds in England, and a very fascinating personality will be with him later on in the program. Just a community announcement coming up very soon here in Baltimore. On Monday night, November 22nd, another entertaining and dynamic speaker on the Jewish circuit tour, Rabbi David Orlovsky, will be speaking on Monday, the 22nd of November at 8 p.m. at Shari Zion Synagogue on the topic, The Secret of the Dreidel. Last year, over 500 women came to to his lecture, and we look forward to a similar number this week, this time, with uh, Rabbi David Orlovsky, Monday, November 22nd, Shari Zion, 8 p.m., for women only in the community launching the Bina Yesera program, the program of learning and keeping women inspired after the seminary experience. Moving on to our website. Our website is www.12stepstoselfesteem.org. That's 12, the number 12, steps to the number 2, selfesteem.org, where you can find our self-esteem programs and also recordings of our weekly lectures. Just go online to hear Dr. Tursky, Rabbi Beryl Wine, Dr. Lisa Aiken, and of course tonight's program with Rabbi Rubenstein. You can reach me by email at facingtheissues at aol.com to ask me any questions you might have on our program or any issues in psychology or questions you have about family or psychotherapy. And now we're moving on to our 12-step program tonight. The fourth step in our 12-step program for building children's self-esteem is called emotional support. Being emotionally supportive, emotional coaching is a technique that we can learn to give credence to the emotions and feelings of our children and in brackets, parentheses, our spouses as well. A child's emotions, fear, sadness, anger, are really an expression of what they're thinking, what they're experiencing, their inner experience. And to identify with, to understand, to connect with those feelings makes the person feel real, connected, understood, and validated. So if a child says, oh, I've hurt my leg, we might say, don't cry, be a man, stand up. That is not validating the child's feelings. Oh, you hurt yourself. I'm sorry, that must hurt you. I hurt myself once, I scraped my knees, You know, I know what it feels like. So there's a special technique of how to experience and understand a child and, in fact, a spouse. There's a three-step process. Number one, label the feeling the person is experiencing. Number two, acknowledge and accept the feeling. And number three, just be with and let the person process. Here is an example. Ellie comes in after school looking sad and dejected. What's wrong, sweetheart? asks mom. Nobody likes me, replies her son. What do you mean, demands mom. Everyone likes you. Danny likes you, Leah likes you, Sarah likes you, Nathan likes you, and Daddy and I like you most of all. Poor mom. She just cannot tolerate Ellie's negative feelings. Without recognizing her own fear and panic, she tries to talk him out of his feelings. This is not emotional coaching. The appropriate approach is as follows. 
No one likes you? Really? That's so sad. That's so sad. I can see you're really feeling badly. With this sort of acknowledgement and acceptance, Ellie probably won't will go on to explain they had a fight that day in school or had an argument with the teacher or a problem in school, and I'll be able to open up. But if you negate the feelings, then you are unable to get the child to feel validated and open up and communicate. That's why people shut down. They don't feel understood. So we do this by acknowledging the feeling, labeling the feeling, by saying, oh, I, I see you're upset, or you look worried, or you're mad at me. And we must say this expression with feeling. You must say, oh, you must be angry right now. Or you must be frustrated right now. Say it with feeling. The person understands. You understand their feelings. Number two, accept it. Oh, so you don't want pizza tonight. I understand that. Okay. Instead of saying, what do you mean you don't want pizza tonight? You love pizza. Acknowledge, accept the feeling. You know, I too didn't like pizza when I was growing up. Show the child that you had a similar experience, if you did, and show that you're real, that you can be identified with by accepting the feelings. And finally, number three, just be with, sit with the child, sit next to them and allow them to process their feelings to come to terms with them. And then you'll hear the following. <sighs> the child will close the flap on their emotional cooking and be able to move on to intellectualizing and problem solving. Now to our special guest, Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein. Rabbi Rubenstein is the student chaplain of Manchester University and Leeds University. He has spoken around the world in South Africa, England, across Europe, and America. He speaks on topics of Jewish interest and Jewish inspiration, and we're very honored to have him with us tonight, all the way from Manchester, England. A special guest, Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein. Good evening, Rabbi Rubenstein, and welcome to our program. Thank you very much indeed. Rabbi Rubenstein, I spent, as you know, nine years in London, England, and every time I spoke there with an American accent, everything I said was seemed to be very sophisticated and very intellectual. The same thing applies over here in America when we hear someone with a foreign accent, especially a British or a Scottish accent, it sounds so sophisticated, but I don't really quite get the differences between Scottish, Irish, and London. Can you please give us a little taste of the differences? Well, you know, it's extremely funny because uh, accents in the UK are multifaceted and also, also multisocial. Uh, I was just speaking to a friend of mine in Los Angeles just minutes ago, pointing out that if you are, if you can use these phrases, working class in England, you will have a completely different London accent to somebody who is upper class. So if you're in London, you might say, hello, I live in London and I drive a Mercedes-Benz and a Rolls-Royce because you're a rich. But if you remember Dick Van Dyke, who did the most appalling Cockney accent, a sort of working class London accent, that's utterly different. So you've got two people living in the same city, uh, one rich, one poor, both Londoners, was born there and speaking totally differently. The rich better talks a little bit like that. Hello, how are you all out there in the colonies? Whereas the working class guy will say, Hello there, how's it all going? What a wonderful dine. It's lovely to speak to America. Um, so that's sort of, even within a city. Then, of course, the major, because the United Kingdom is basically um, four composite nations joined together under Her Majesty the Queen's guidance and that of her corgis, bless them. Praise um, the sorry? Praise the Queen. God save the Queen. So, of course, you've got a Scottish accent, and I myself come from Scotland, which makes me superior to almost every other sort of human being on the planet. I, I, Braveheart. And then, of course, you've got an English accent, but there are so many of them. There's a London accent, and then there's the, there you've got a Manchester accent if you live in the north of the country. Uh, but, of course, then there's an Irish accent. Now, 
Irish accent. We're talking about Belfast, where they had a slight bit of difficulty over the last couple of years, whether they were Catholic or Protestant. But it's a very harsh accent, actually. And they talk like that. We come from Belfast, and we hate everybody else, and I've got an armor-like rifle, and if you disagree with me, I'm going to blow your kneecaps off. Um, I don't know if you got that. Right, um, and then, of course, I'm holding the Welsh. on to my kneecaps as we speak. Sorry? I'm holding on to my kneecaps as we oh, speak. Please hold on to your kneecaps. It's extremely important. And then, of course, there's a Welsh accent. Um, Welsh accents are not so well-known in America, um, but quite a few famous people in the film industry come from, came from Wales. Hannibal Lecter, um, that is the, the actor who played him, Bob, was in Hoskins? Anthony Hoskins, I think, something like that. Anyway, he comes from Wales. Boyo, and in Wales, they've got quite a melodic accent, and they talk a bit like that, and they say boyo a lot, which means something like guy. Oh, boyo, how's everything going in your life? So that's basically the four accents that make up the United Kingdom. Jolly good. Rabbi Robinson, talking about accents, as you go out into the world as you're a student chaplain and you lecture to students and young people around the world, what are the different accents that young people place on life today as they try to find themselves in the world today? You know, it's, it's very strange because when I was young, uh, I, okay, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, I'm, I'm 49. I'm not ashamed of it, but I'm 49. So that meant I was born in 1955 and so I lived through the Beatles and stuff like that. When I was young, everybody thought that they would remain young forever and they were very idealistic and they were going to change the world as the Vietnam War raged and stuff like that. Um, then... Time changed, time moved on, and we had somebody called Margaret Thatcher over here, and you had somebody called Ronald Reagan over there. Um, and it, the cold realities of economic uncertainty started to send in the Western world, and the legacy still uh, carries on from that. Students are no longer idealistic, aren't going in marches you know, to, on great social issues like um, rights for minority people, blacks, etc., People became very, very much focused and more focused on just getting their qualification from college, uh, getting a good job, and hopefully holding on to it. So there are no big issues, no great isms like socialism in Europe or or women's rights or whatever that, no, that, that are still pertinent and capturing the imagination of young people today. So the the problems tend to be more of a hedonistic and a personal nature. Young people are still struggling with their identity as to who I am as a person. They're not signing up to any great social movement, but still, the classic who am I uh, applies. The problems of drugs are, the, and the, the attrition rate from, from, from drugs on, on campus and at university is still enormously, enormously painful and, and horrible to watch. And and people have, you know, the classic um Perpetual problems like difficulties with the parents and difficulties with the siblings and struggling with the course. So I, I find myself dealing with the, the classic all-time greats as opposed to a new great fashion that's come along and, and made and robbed people of their loyalty to perhaps uh, their background, their family, or their previous beliefs. So it's really a focus, an inward focus, a reflective focus on what you are, who you are, and try to find meaning in life. Is that what you're saying? Very much. Um, but even that, it still has to be jostled a little bit, it has to be encouraged, because as I say still the legacy from the Reagan Thatcher era is that there, you know, people are still a wee bit more concerned um, about will they be able to get the security of a, of a career and a job. So there's, because of that, they are not so willing to experiment. So they still feel the pain and the angst of those questions, but they have to be encouraged to actually explore 
what the answer might be to who am I, where did I come from, my family background, my, my culture, my people. Uh, that needs a bit of encouragement, I suppose, well, it's one of my main jobs as a, a campus rabbi, as a rabbi working with university students, to, to, to trigger that, that interest. So how does this quest for meaning in Judaism for young Jewish students on campus, how does that fit into the search for meaning for self? Well, of course, uh, I suppose anybody starting off um, will start off with who I am and where I come from before they necessarily uh, go on to experiment with perhaps maybe I should be somewhere else and have been somewhere else from the beginning. So they're really synonymous. Uh, basically, a person will want to know, is there any validity to the, the people, the sets of beliefs, or even the family unit that produced me and launched me into the world? Is it worth being a Jew, to put it frankly? Is it, is it not something that should have been left behind in the, in the, the trash heap of history many millennia ago? And it seems to carry on through all the eras and, and all the cultures. So is, is that valid? Should I sign up to that? So that's basically where people are going to start. I'm quite happy for them to start there, and that's where my qualifications lie, uh, to allow them to ask the big questions like, you know, why did God let the Holocaust happen, or can you prove that God exists, etc., etc., and to try and help them come to terms with the answers that are available. Let's imagine for a moment that you have a group of 100 students. They're skeptical. They're freshmen in the first year of university at Manchester or Leeds, where you're the student chaplain, and you're trying to make an impression on them to embark upon this journey with you in terms of their Jewish self. Yeah. What would you say to really spark their interest? Well, um, the first thing is, uh, I suppose I better make it quite clear, I'm not a missionary, uh, and I'm not out there to proselytize and to, to actively um, show them that they should believe what I believe. What I believe. As, far as, as far as I'm concerned, if I can portray Judaism as being relevant, uh, intellectually stimulating, and very importantly, enjoyable and fun, then I've shown them that there is an open door, and after that it's up to them to make the personal decision whether or not they want to walk through it. And if they don't, obviously I think that's a shame, but that's their choice, which I respect. So go back to the last point which I made. The more enjoyable and the more fun you can make, um, and fun I don't mean flippant, but generally it can be fun and intellectual, you can make the person's discovery of Judaism the more likely the person is to want to prosecute that and to carry on and take it to you know to the next stage. So when they arrive at university, there is always what's called um, a freshers' stalls. So all every single society that is available: scuba diving, uh, parachuting, um, ba- medieval banqueting society, witchcraft, whatever you like. They're all there in some huge university hall. And I usually walk in there, and I'm an Orthodox rabbi, wearing something which, as it were, smashes the stereotype that they expect about me. So I might wear the costume, which I believe is more becoming in a man than any other. And of course, I refer to a, school, a full Scottish kilt. Oh, yes. I could wear my kilt. Lovely. And, uh, and of course, all my accoutrements, my sporran, which is a little pouch that sits in the front, my ski and dew, the black knife, which tucks neatly down my sock. And I walk in there, and it's very difficult to be put off and say, oh my God, he's an Orthodox rabbi. Ugh, don't want anything to do with him when I look so incredibly fantastic. Because I'm Scottish as well, you see. It's a question of breaking down the stereotypes, then mm-hmm. letting them come to you. Really, you have to assert your, your credentials as just a friend, a person who's there for them who will try and help. And after that, let them uh, seek you out. And the bagpipes, Rabbi Rubenstein, what about the bagpipes? I do play them. 
Um, I'm pretty off. I play the guitar much, much better. Yeah. Um, but I do play the bagpipes, yes. So but you, I don't. <laughs> you play the bagpipes and you have studied for nine years in Gateshead Yeshiva, so that is a, there is a contrast for you. Well, yes. Um, it was actually seven and a half years, and then I went to uh, Liverpool. Liverpool, colon, there's a totally different accent again. Remember the Beatles? Hello, we're Liverpool. Totally different accent. Mm. And I studied for four, probably four years uh, in, in Liverpool. And Liverpool's one of my universities, incidentally, and I enjoy going there very, very much. You're talking about making it fun, Robert Rubenstein, and I've addressed this issue here in uh, America, this issue of kids, Jewish Orthodox children, going off the derech. Do you have any advice to parents of how we can get our own people who are have been involved in Judaism and Jewish way of life and are walking away? How do we reach them and bring them back? Two things, um, two important points, and it's rather relevant bearing in, in mind we're just talking a day or two days after George W. Bush was re-elected. Um, and I must say I wish him well. Uh, but basically when his father was standing for re-election, of course, along came Bill Clinton, and uh, toppled the king from his throne. And George Bush, or George Bush Sr. had done a tremendous job as a president. Everybody seemed to agree that. Uh, he had fought the first Gulf War, defeated the tyrant, and was universally or internationally respected. Uh, and yet he was defeated. And the reason was that uh, Bill Clinton had a sign above his campaign office for his supporters and workers for them to focus on. And it was just three words. The economy, stupid. Uh, because at the time, America indeed felt that George Bush Sr. Was, was a good president, but the people were worried about their savings and their jobs and their mortgages. And so he focused on the economy, stupid, and, and he won. And I always say uh, to, to Jewish parents, if you're going to have a kid, put a sign above the nursery, and you should say, make it fun, stupid. If being Jewish is fun and enjoyable, there is an enormous the increased chance that the people will want, your children will want to stay there. Another important thing, and this is crucial, my, t- my teacher and mentor, Rabbi Gates said, Rabbi Rakov, passed away recently, told me when I was a young man and asked that very question, make sure there is enough time uh, in your life to devote to each and every child, and it's their special time, so that they feel that you have made time for them and you listen to their concerns and worries. In fact, I know somebody who is called Emil Mormonstein, uh, now uh, passed away, is actually in charge of British military intelligence during the Second World War for the Mediterranean region. He was an Orthodox Jewish fellow. When he passed away, his seven sons, who were sitting Shiva, the seven days of mourning, of course, after uh, the death of somebody, were sitting there and discussing their father. And what emerged was really amazing. Each son revealed the fact that he had believed that he was his father's favorite. But I think that shows that the man was a brilliant parent because obviously each one got Rolls-Royce treatment, solid gold treatment, to the extent where they thought they were the favorite. But they all did, so they all got equal treatment, and it was always the best. And if you can give that to your kids, then there's very little chance, in my opinion, that they'll want to wander too far from a home of such warmth and love. And so the values that you embrace and have carried forward from your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, there's every likelihood that your, parents will t- that your children will take up the parents' values and carry it forward to their kids. So warmth and love. What if a person is not so demonstrative, is not so outgoing and warm themselves, they're more serious and more um, thinking, uh, intellectual. How does an intellectual, thinking, more serious person inject some fun into their family life from a Jewish perspective? Well, you know, that's what I said earlier on. 
fun can be intellectual as well. It doesn't have to be fun sort of like dressing up like uh, Coco the Clown or, or that sort of stuff, although I often do actually dress up as Coco the Clown. Um, but quite seriously, you know, not only do we look like our parents, and, and oftentimes people do look like their parents. In fact, when I was a little boy, people often used to say to me, you look just like your mum. And I used to say, my mum's a woman. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that we don't just get our looks from our parents, we also get our temperaments from our parents and often our gifts. And intellectual parents, there's a very strong likelihood, will produce intellectual children. The fun that intellectual parents will have and the interaction they'll have with their child might well be discussing Pythagoras' uh, theorem and um, or other things with their children that you and I might play baseball or football or something with our kids. Um, and that would be the interaction that's appropriate for them. How do you make Shabbos fun? <laughs> How do you make Shabbos fun? Well, I think Shabbos starts off by, by being lots of fun, um, even before you get anywhere. First of all, there's the incredible aesthetic uh, beauty of it all. But as the children are, I mean, I spent a lot of time wearing out my, the, the knees in my pants when I was a kid, when I was, my kids were kids, when I was um, being the horse down on the floor and they were riding about in my back. And there's no reason at all why you can't play games like Scrabble, although the pieces mustn't fit into a slotted board, but you can still play Scrabble, mm. and chess, and walks, and stories. Everybody loves a story. Uh, clever parents will have stories to tell their kids at the Shabbos table. And really, um, bearing in mind that the world has forgotten how to sing. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, there, apart from people who actually seek out choirs, people don't sing anymore. You know, every Friday night, we gather around and we sing. And that can be fun as well. Let me tell you an interesting story. I got a phone call once from a fellow who was a, a TV producer for something called Channel 4 over here in England. And he wanted to do this. It was, they were doing a series called The Weekend, in which they were going to follow various groups of people to see what they did with their weekend. Football fans, people who sailed boats. One of them was to be The Sabbath. And the guy phoned me up and he said... He would like to do something on the Jewish Sabbath. Would I help him produce the program? And I said, yes, of course. And they, he ended off by saying, I know something about the Sabbath because my father was a priest. And I said, fine. And I hung up the phone. And as soon as I did that, I thought, could this be possible? Because his name was James Runcy. He said his father was a priest. And when he came, indeed, my suspicion was confirmed. His father was a priest. His father was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Lord Robert Francie, the leader of, I think, something like 300 million Christians or 200 million Christians of that particular denomination in the world. Right. And he interviewed me for, uh, for half an hour on the subject of what happens on the Jewish Sabbath. And then he asked if I, he could carry on the interview and he put another tape into the, the camera with the film crew and asked me another load of questions that lasted an hour. And at the end of it, this is what he said. He said, Robert Winstein, I'm not Jewish. None of the film crew here are Jewish. Is there anything we can have that's like Shabbos? Mm. And he meant it quite sincerely. When he heard what Shabbos is, instead of being a list of things you can do, a list of things you no longer have to do, you're liberated from the email and the fax and the text and the telephone and the pressure of work, and you can have time to talk to your kids. That itself can be fun. And when he heard about this, a, you know, a son of a prince of the church said to me, is there anything we can have that's like Shabbos? Mm. And he wrote to me after to say that he and his partner uh, were trying very hard. She showed him the interview. He showed her rather the interview. Trying much harder, he said, than bringing up their three little girls. And I thought, you know, see, Shabbos reaches into, into strange places. Mm. So we've, places. we've really forgotten 
how to experience Shabbos. We've forgotten how to invent or recreate Shabbos. Is that what you're saying? You know, you, you, know, um, you were talking about accents. So let me tell you a story that happened to me, um, and here's a Welsh accent. I once was a joint, just speaking jointly at a fundraising dinner for a charity, a Jewish charity, and the other guest was somebody called Viscount Tony Pandy. The Viscount Tony Pandy, um, a lord in the British House of Lords, was um, a great friend of the Jews, a Christian, religious Christian, um, and he spoke about the first Jew he ever met. Uh, he was, in those days, a little boy in a Welsh mining town called Tony Pandy, so when he was elevated to become a lord, he took his title from the town he came from. And in that town, there was one Jew, just one Jew. And this Jew um, was called Isaacs, and the Jew got hold of this little boy, who was only, I think, six or seven at the time, and said that if he was to willing to come into his house on a Friday night and Saturday morning on our Shabbos to light the coal fire, then he would receive uh, a prize or, a, or a, a wage of three pennies, thruppence. It used to be a, a British coin, which is a very cute little uh, coin, a thruppenny bit. So he proudly returned home to show his strict Methodist mother his first wage. And he held it up while she was washing dishes um, at the sink, and she saw him out the corner of her eye and very slowly dried her hands and turned to him and said, in her Welsh accent, Where did you get that, boy? And he replied, The Jew, Mr. Isaacs, he gave it to me, Mum. He says I have to come in and light his coal fire Friday night and a Saturday morning, that's his Sabbath. If I do that every week, I get a thruppence. And his mother said, Take it back, boy. And he said, But why, Mum? Take it back, boy. He said, But I can have it. Take it back. But why? You don't take money from a man to help him serve his God. And so the little Geordie Thomas, as he was in those days, his name was George, went back to the Jew Isaacs to return the thruppins, but the Jew Isaacs would hear nothing of it and march the little boy back to the mother. And there there started an argument between the religious, the religious Christian lady and the religious Jew over the fate of the thruppins. And a compromise was reached, and he was allowed to keep the thruppins on that particular occasion, but after that, he would light the Jews' fire for nothing. And after he retold this story, Viscount Tony Pandy, the ex-speaker of the British House of Commons, turned to this large Jewish audience and he said, And you Jews, you've forgotten who you are. When we were sitting in caves in this country, you'd already built your golden temple in Jerusalem. When we were wearing bearskins, you'd already written the book that would inspire the ethics and morals of humanity. Never be ashamed of being Jewish. You've forgotten who you are. And there's a lot in that story. Very powerful. Robert Rubenstein, you speak every week on BBC, BBC4, to 7.5 million people on the thought for the day. Can you share with us, as we have our last few minutes left on this program today, the thought for the day? Well, in May of this year, my wife passed away after a long illness. A few weeks later, I made my two daughters an offer. When it came to the summer, we would spend three weeks traveling around the USA, the whole trip was to culminate in Los Angeles and a visit to Disneyland. Now, between you and me, I'm not a huge fan of Mickey Mouse and his chums. Being of a, a more intellectual disposition, I've always leaned more towards Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and Elmer Fudd. Still, the whole idea was to give the girls the trip of a lifetime, so I did my best to suppress my anti-Disney prejudice and pretend that, next to winning a, a lottery prize, there was nothing I wanted more than to walk about in about 97 degrees centigrade wearing a pair of mouse ears. My eldest daughter did suspect that I was not 100% committed to the project, but I put on the old smile whenever the subject came up. 
Eventually, the great day arrived, and we embarked on the pilgrimage to the place that was the culmination of Walt Disney's dream. As we parked in the car park about the size of Scotland, I was feeling that I'd have preferred to have all my teeth extracted without anaesthetic. The first attraction was a thing called It's a Small World. Here you sit in a pretend boat and sail along a pretend river through a pretend mountain. Inside are little animated models dressed in the national costumes of all the nations of the world, smiling in pretend harmony at each other, while a recording plays a chorus of children singing that It's a small world after all. While we're waiting in the the line the half hour or so it took to get into the boat, I found myself behind a father and his son of about ten. It was very, very hot, and I decided to strike up a conversation with this dad. Hi. I hate this place, he replied loudly. Why the hell I allowed him to drag me back here, he pointed to the son. I'll never know. I hated it four years ago, and I hate it now. I felt more than a wee bit embarrassed for the kid, and said quietly, Well, I'm sure all us parents feel like that. I think the trick is not letting them know. My fellow sufferer didn't see it my way at all, and replied even louder, Oh no, he knows I hate this damn place, and he knows I always will. There's a Jewish teaching which says, Not everything that's thought should be said and not everything that's said should be written. I've always thought that's very clever, but when it comes to bringing up children, it's genius. Now, the room is saying we must have you back on this program in the near future. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, all the way from Manchester, England. Look forward to having you back again, and look forward to seeing you on these shores very soon. Thank you very much indeed. God bless. Good night.